This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Home is within you. As a young Latina and Native American lawyer and former wife of California's Attorney General and Treasurer, Nadia Davis has long been subjected to public scrutiny. In this powerful homage to finding one's worth in the face of mental health struggles, addiction, and public shaming, Davis shares her remarkable story. She reveals the depths of the darkness she went through while gracefully offering transformational healing and an end to the choking grasp of shame. Lyrical and captivating, Home is Within You, recounts the author's experience of trauma and addiction amid a highly publicized, abusive relationship. Davis is brutally honest about her experiences and generous in revealing the paths she's found to wholeness through spiritual advocacy, healthy co-parenting, and a dedication to preventing generational trauma. Home is Within You shares one woman's courageous journey to recovery as a mother and as a woman. Her narrative is a defense of privacy, parenthood, and autonomy. Nadia Davis is the mother of three sons, a writer, attorney, kundalini yoga teacher, and former executive director and elected official. She graduated from UCLA with a degree in sociology and specialization in juvenile justice and from Loyola Law School with a doctorate. She's received numerous state and national awards for her work improving the lives of others, including the John F. Kennedy Jr. Public Service Award, National Women's Political Caucus Woman of the Year, and Hispanic Woman of the Year, LULAC. Her journey to recovery from childhood and adult trauma, a near-death car accident, chronic pain, public shaming, addiction, and mental health is an inspiration to so many. She shows readers a way out of darkness into connection with their infinite true selves, and our home within. Nadia lives in Southern California, happily co-parenting her three sons. For more information, please visit her website at nadia-davis.com. That's N-A-D-I-A hyphen D-A-V-I-S dot com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Elizabeth Cronin. And today I'm very excited to be talking with Nadia Davis about her new book coming out soon, which is called Home is Within You. It's a memoir of recovery and redemption. 
I'm so glad to have you here. As I was telling you earlier, I just loved your book. Thank you so much. Yeah. So just as background, could you start by just telling people a little bit about yourself? I mean, you're a lawyer and you've been politically active, but just to give people some context of, you know, your work, your life coming up to how you came to write this book. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if I can put a bow on it or put it in a nutshell. Um, I mean, like many, uh, I survived a lot. Um, Some childhood sexual trauma and racial bullying. And, you know, I didn't know that my mind was shaped as it was as a child and its survivalist nature. And um, I was the bright-eyed little brown girl that just wanted to save the world. And so you know, I just had the grin and bear it attitude throughout my youth and through college, um, and then followed in my, my father's footsteps, who was an orphan field worker and my inspiration, he became an attorney. And, um, I went to law school and he passed abruptly in law school. And again, I just grinned and, and drove through it. And I became a local elected official in Santa Ana, um, his birthplace in California, and, um, you know, was a rising local political um, elected person and attorney. Um, I did get my license to practice law, and my first case was representing a wrongfully convicted kid, um, got a major law firm and investigators to assist, and it became you know, a heartfelt national effort. And um, in the midst of that, I suffered a near-death car accident. And um, again, all the focus of my worth was on the outside. And I went back to work in my wheelchair and um, it slowly started catching up with me. A lot of the childhood trauma and my best friend died abruptly and not knowing the effects of chronic pain, you know, grief, trauma, I just went into that grin and bear it, save the world role again. And I was grateful that I had a community that was, you know, so hopeful, so supportive and, and needy in so many ways in terms of their poverty challenges and justice challenges and education. And in the midst of all of that and receiving state and national awards, you know, fulfilling um, my dream really to help other people. Uh, I met my ex-husband who was the standing attorney general at the time and uh, made a plea for the kids of Santa Ana. And um, we had our first date and I got pregnant. I'm married, pregnant, and my life further catapulted into the public eye and just kept going. I became the executive director of the Alameda County Family Justice Center that co-locates services for victims of interpersonal violence. Um, In the midst of all of that, again, adult trauma occurred. And I uh, lost um, a child in utero, Arthur Carmona, who was freed 
um, was struck and killed um, by a car. And my brother attempted suicide under our roof. And that all happened within a year. And I started managing. My body was just overwhelmed with the pre-existing as well as the aggravated chronic pain. And during that time, my drinking um, dramatically increased. And again, not having trauma recovery skills, any addiction recovery skills, any chronic pain management in healthy ways. Um, I went straight into that, you know, numb it, disassociate, keep going. And I, um, I ran for higher office, was elected to county supervisor. Following that, I did seek help for um, my alcoholic drinking. And I met a peer who I thought uh, was who he said he was. My husband and I were separated, trying to work it out a little bit. And um, that was the biggest mistake of my life. I uh, tried a drug, I got addicted and I fell hard. And that man ended up assaulting me, uh, took photos of me without my knowledge and blackmailed us and did a variety of things. And that is what became Nadia Davis out in the public eye. And it was just further imprinted in my psyche that I was an addict, an infidel, unstable, and the shame just brought me to suicidality. So, yeah, I mean, we, it's so clear that you're on a mission to talk about shame and what shame, what shame does to people, how it, it could disconnects them from having any sense of their true self. Right. Right. And, you know, we grow up as, you know, we're born as little innocent beings. We don't know that, you know, we're souls that are just in a body and our minds like immediately go into for rightful reason. The human race has lasted this long. You know, we were talking earlier about the settlers and um, just the human race, humankind has survived this long because our mind is in survival mode. And as a child, you know, um, when there is trauma, when there isn't trauma, we create these ways of surviving. And when there is abuse and trauma and then addiction, um, our mind will send what I have learned through my therapist is attack thoughts. And it's shame, fear, judgment on self or outwardly or projected onto us shame, fear, judgment, and it separates us exactly from that truth of what we are, from our souls that are whole, perfect, and complete. And in the- From each other. From each other. And in the process too, when you're struggling the most, and you really highlight this in your memoir, the system treats you like, not like you need help, but that you, there is something wrong with me that you need to be punished. You need to be- right. I mean, it's so painful in your book, anytime you were, you know, not able to be with your children, it was so painful and we have to find a better traumatized them, further traumatized them. And 
I share a lot of that in the book. And, um, you know, my main focus is to help the justice system by working individually with people to remind themselves of the truth of what they are, that they're not that branding, they're not the label on the sentence. And that's what most struggle with is, is that branding. But the system, I do believe, I do believe that we can definitely improve recovery for families if there are places that families can go together where sobriety is required, stability is worked on, and the children are kept safe, um, treatment centers, as well as in-home ways to have the accountability, but to have the whole family helped and serviced so that the separation, the severity of trauma from separation is only adding another layer and that could be prevented. I do believe it can be prevented. Yeah. I mean, you had your own experience in your childhood of when at one point um, your parents, uh, your mom ends up leaving and you aren't even, you don't even realize it until you come home from school. So that idea that, you know, I could see why you feel so sensitive to this idea that, you know, children shouldn't have to suddenly be without a parent and certainly not without some explanation. Right. Now I'm grateful that my mom finally, um, she had had enough of my father's drinking. He was an alcoholic, a highly functioning one. And he stopped cold Turkey that I couldn't do that. Um, but she left for Germany and, um, yes, my older sister went with her and she returned, but the initial experience of not having taken the time to sit down and say, I need some time. This is good for your mom. This is what I will be doing. Uh, You'll be safe here. Everything will be taken care of. Um, This is not your fault. And I'll check in. You know, I mean, my mom did not have those skills to verbalize what she was going through. But in modern society today, even if there could be that opportunity given to parents versus the memory of physical removal, you know, on a child, even if there could be, I mean, this is in certain circumstances. I mean, in some that has to happen for the physical safety of a child. Um, But there are alternatives and there are ways to lessen the severity of separation let alone to prevent it entirely. It did mark my head. It did mark my head, that experience. But I I believe, again, starting with individuals and parents to to teach them to ban their own shame and then simple words that can be used with their their children if they do need to go into treatment. Mm -hmm. And and then also within the system, cross-training with therapists and the social workers, social workers and the therapists, that this is the language that you can use. Take five minutes and have this conversation with the child and the parent together. Right. Right. And I think, but partly why parents don't have those conversations is because they don't feel it's going to go well and they don't, they don't have the internal resources. Exactly. 
you know? So they just, exactly. they try to avoid the discomfort by minimizing or ignoring it or, you know, mm-hmm. just not, a, not addressing it. So but in those moments, there's just complete overwhelm. And, and that's, the aim is to prevent anything from getting there. You know, the aim is to get to a point where a parent, again, is working on their own attack thoughts in the struggles of mental health and addiction and returning to that calm place of a home within. And even though there may be courts, there may be chaos going around, that they can stay present. And it takes time, you know, not, and the road isn't perfect. You know, for me, it was a seven-year journey, treatment, jail, and hospitalizations to get to a point where when there was an argument or there was a trigger, you know, um, a psychological trigger, that there was a capability to say, okay, I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to acknowledge this and I'm going to verbalize. I, I need two minutes. And, you know, that becomes then parenting skills later. But I want to, you know, emphasize to those listening that, that it's a process and there's no shame in falls. There's no, there shouldn't be any shame, but it's what we do with that fall, you know, what we learn from it, but more importantly, what we tell ourselves, you know, that we, we deserve to try again and nothing that, that has been learned, nothing that has been gained physically from sobriety is lost. It's, it's a process. It's a process. And that's why banning the shame is so important. It's a long process. And it's interesting too, because there's been so much progress made around reducing the shame and reducing the stigma of getting help, you know, for for mental health or behavioral health. And yet it still exists and was extremely challenging in your situation, because here you are someone in, you know, in the public eye, married to somebody, you know, in the public eye. And in, in your story, you share that it's not like that was an easy, would be an easy thing for you to do, to just like go out and get treatment when you're being watched and, and vulnerable to being judged in the way you later were judged. Right. right. But I mean, let's be real. It was during the depression. Wasn't that long ago. And the headlines, then if somebody lost their home and what there's a phrase, it's toxic positivity that um, I cannot remember the name who created that, but toxic positivity was, you know, people, saying, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. In the severe depression. And when people lost their homes, the the headlines were, you know, loser commits suicide. And I mean, think about it. That wasn't that long ago. And so, I mean, granted there has been progress, but, but I believe that there can be much, much better coverage of those struggling with mental health and addiction, and that it's an opportunity to say, you know, what's really happening behind this person, this person's behavior, you know, what's really going on inside and what help are they receiving? Um, we, we may not even have the answers, but at least pose the question versus arrest, you know, versus um, in treatment, you know, there are, a plentitude of opportunities to get the public thinking about 
why people behave a certain way. And I think you sharing this story, I know it was your intention to share this story to help other people find their voice and and get more comfortable sharing their story. And at the same time that it's helpful for you to, to bring this to out into the public, you do grapple with in the memoir how you really digging into your story and fully accepting it helped you too, helped you recover. I mean, not trying, uh, yes. yeah, trying not to keep up appearances, which you did for survival for so long, really being able to face your story helped, helped you heal. I mean, my photo was on the cover. Um, there were several covers and the publisher loved that one. And um, so, yes, it's, it's, um, it had to be embracing the full story. And I think what ultimately um, has me okay with this next phase and the book release in April is, is I am a woman and I am a mother and I am a minority. And I do think that if there is, you know, getting back to the point that we were making before, that there is progress with reduced shaming, that the where there hasn't been much is with women and mothers in terms of like the public perception. And I do believe that it is a massively challenging, massively challenging feat for a mom that is struggling with mental health and addiction or a father that's a single parent, but the female image is so brutally shamed. And it's, and then in particular, you know, it is the, again, the branding, they made mine into a sex and drug scandal instead of an assault and exploitation of a woman. And so you know, that's on a grand scale, but uh, the, the average woman who has little ones can be suffering from stress, from anxiety. It doesn't need to be a major addiction or, or mental health issue. And to walk out on the street and, you know, know that maybe the neighbors heard her crying outside on the patio or anything of the sort. Um, creates isolation and fear. And so, yes, I had to embrace the full story. I had to um, completely put it all out there for me not to be worried about whatever anybody might say, but also so that there's a piece in it that anybody can relate to. You know, um, I can't tell you how many women and how many people have pointed out different parts um, of the book or what I've shared online, you know, through my Instagram healing connection times that, that it was the first, you know, place that they read their words or that they um, were able to find words to communicate to somebody else. And so that is where I find my strength in embracing the whole story. It's, they said this, my mind said this to me, and neither one of those is true. You know, I know my truth. I know we are all infinite beings, whole, perfect, and complete, and, and we're in these bodies temporarily. You know, I am not a body, nor the thoughts my mind makes, but you better bet I'm going to embrace my body 
I'm going to celebrate it. And all the titles or, you know, whatever might come. But I know my truth. And if we know our truth and we embrace the story, what is said and what is done just loses power. That's the part I think is going is kind of tricky for people because mm-hmm. myself as someone who's who has <clears throat> studied and is a meditation teacher, I've worked my way through getting to that concept, that kind of belief. I think most of us do think that our story is who we are. Right. Our our previous experiences and behaviors are who we are. And that's, I think it's hard for people. So maybe you could share a little bit about the spiritual journey part for you, because what I, what I love about your book is here you are, you're, you're just a very bright, ambitious young woman with full of potential and headed in a direction with all the superficial skills that set you up for success. And yet what really brings you back to a real sense of love of life again is the spiritual journey. And so I love whenever I get a business person or somebody from that paradigm to like share their story, because it is hard to get to that place where you're like, what I, the, I am, my home is within it for someone not exposed to that earlier in their life. It's like, what are you talking about? It doesn't make sense. (laughs) And you grapple a little bit with that. You you write about that in the book, which I think will, readers will love. You know, like, what are you talking about? Yes. Yes. My, my journey began first with finding safety just in my body and with my mind. And I found that through simple breath work. I found it initially um, through a treatment center for women that I was at that brought us to a yoga studio, Seven Chakra Yoga. Um, that I now work with. And, you know, most people think it has to be something fancy and they need to like do hot yoga or they need to shut their brain off completely. And the magic of Kundalini yoga that I found in particular was that I didn't have to do any of that. I just had, I just had to listen to the mantra or the gong and try and just sit still and connect with my breath. And just by doing that, my mind calmed enough, the pain calmed enough that there was a neutral, a neutral space. And that takes time. But that in and of itself, breathing and sitting or listening to the gong or mantra is meditation. And again, that's again, where shame will come in. Oh, I'm not doing this right. Or I'm, what do you mean? Aha moment. And it's a process. It's a process. And through that process, slowly but surely, you know, I got certified in level one. I did many, many classes. I also used some of the calming, the somatic calming when my body was reacting to pain or a flashback. Over time, I was able to get to a space in meditation it was the closest thing here in this second life I was given, or maybe third or fourth. It was the closest thing to what I had experienced in the near-death car accident. And it was neutrality, a meditative space where past, present, and future just all were there. And it just was. 
it made sense. There was no longer a struggle to figure anything out. It was just be, just walk in the hour, in the today, and try not to figure it out with this head just for right now, just for today. And I just fed that more and more and more over the years. And thank goodness I had a Kundalini yoga family and a community. And I did, you know, two, three level two trainings and mind and meditation and conscious communication. And then the last of which was my favorite authentic relationships. And this is, you know, years and years of Eastern studies that are in a book. And it's, it's like, a, I'm a little kid again. It's, it's never ending learnings. But again, I want to emphasize to listeners that the simplicity of just sitting and breathing deeply in through your nose and out through your mouth and just listening to your breath is the simplest, most loving thing that you can do for yourself at any given time. And I do that, you know, for 20 minutes every day, twice a day. And when I don't, I get into that just grin and bear it and survival mind mode and rolls that much more. And eventually I don't like it. <laughs> so that so when, when you deep. do that, when you do that 20 minutes though, are you, because people will ask me this too, because I meditate every morning too, sometimes, sometimes for up sometimes to longer. Yeah. Depends on how long I have, how much time I have, but they'll That's say, right. you're just sitting there in, you know, blissfully enjoying peace and, and, <laughs> and all of that. I mean, how, how would you answer that question? Like, what are you doing for that 20 minutes? It depends on the day. It depends on what's going on, but meaning in my head, it depends. But I have a space, it's on my little, you know, my rug and it's by my bowl and by my candles, by the, the feathers, some of which were on my father's body. He was buried with a plume of eagle feathers. So there's little things that have a spiritual symbolism to me. They're just on this little table in my rug on my pillow. I use two because of my back being broken and whatever anybody needs to do to create that comfort. I have mine. I sit there. Sometimes I run to it. Other times I scuttle up and I sit and I breathe. And when I'm struggling to get to this circle or tunnel of the space, I think about the last time I saw my father and his embrace. I replay that once or twice a day to begin my meditation. And it's his hand embracing me and he's right there. And then it's just him and some other people near and dear to me. Some have passed, some are still here. And I, I use that visual and that leads me in the breath work or with a mantra playing sometimes to putting it out there to the universe and being able to listen. And sometimes there's just, you know, there's clarity. Sometimes there's release. Sometimes there's answers. It's various different levels. Yeah. I think sometimes too. Yeah. And you can also, I think part of the challenge is you have to kind of get through the initial discomfort because it's so noisy the the thoughts, the attack thoughts and the mm-hmm. ruminating over 
the past or worrying about the future. You, when I, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you just, you, the, that's why I think too, and in your, your different uh, people that supported you and helped you through would say to you, like, you got to keep doing it over. It has to be a daily thing. You have to come. But they weren't there. They weren't living in my house. They weren't, you know, a neighbor. It, it is having that self-love, that self-care and knowing it is key to anything else that might happen in that day. Anything else that you're going to do, nothing on your to-do list, doing it first thing. If you need to get your coffee or tea, bring it with you. I know for me, when I am in more of that restless mode and, and there's been things going on with care for my mom and some stuff with the kids and I'm carrying it in the body and, and I'm feeling less calm within. I will do a couple different sets of breath work and you can, if we're speaking in, in yogic terms, there's a way to get from your first chakra and go through the middle and up to your heart by simply you know, taking a deep breath and holding your breath and pumping your belly five times. If I'm in my body in this, you know, grin and bear it mode, I will do that. And that will, I've been doing that every morning, actually, the last couple of weeks. That will eventually get the body systematically up more into my heart. Is again, taking a deep breath in and pumping the belly for as long as you can hold the breath and then releasing and doing it as many times as possible. So that's simply, you know, stabilizing the body. The another thing is breath of fire is where you do a quick breath in and out of your nose, pumping the belly. Those are, are two examples when I am restless in my body. If, if I'm not, and I'm waking up and I'm, you know, in a calm mind mentally, then it's starting with that vision and simple breath work. Another thing I want to mention is the power of mantra. Mm -hmm. For those that are just beginning on, on wanting to begin a meditation practice, if you look up, you know, various mantras, and again, I share a lot on my Instagram, simple forward phrases, satanama means transformation. And each one of those words Sa, infinite, ta, you know, death, ma, life, rebirth, satanama is, it basically means transformation. And if you listen to the song and just sit and listen, that is again, another little baby step to eventually work towards silence with your own breath. Sometimes I just do mantra. Sometimes I just do deep breathing with mantras, sometimes the more pointed body calming ones. It really just depends, but wherever you're at, there is a tool. There is a way to calm our minds, to remind yourself we are not the physical body that might be hurting and we're not the thoughts that might be coming in. We can observe them, say thank you for keeping me safe and helping me survive maybe sometimes chuckle at ourselves, chuckle at others and begin the day just a little more calmly with a little bit more self-love. Yeah. Maybe you could say something too about how that has changed and influenced the way you parent. Totally. 
Yes. So there is a program called Mightier. And for kids that have so much technology today, the analogy of how using your breath uh, to calm in real time um, is represented by this program that has a heart monitor. So the so what it does is if your heart races too high, the child needs to breathe and the game will restart. The, the game will stop if the heart rate is too high. That kind of began with my children, I don't know, three years ago. They were young. And it's a simple little game and the creatures are called the lava lanes. And so through my continued uh, training in Kundalini yoga and my own recovery, I've used that term, the lava lanes, for them with what I call today. And I, you know, share with others about being aware of our attack thoughts. My oldest son has an analogy in a radio channel that he can turn down and turn up. And he knows, and the little ones know that the best way to do that is through their breath, is through their breath. So again, they see my meditation spot, they go there, they know mommy has these, you know, practices. Sometimes they want to listen to the music. Um, I was surprised how long that they let me have it on yesterday. <laughs> you know, um, there's beautiful, beautiful uh, artists, Sanam Carr and so many others. Um, just having that in the background is exposing them. Just having a meditation spot in your room is exposing them. And then in their way, I'm me saying the lava lings are in your head. You know, what can you do? And I'll go, it works sometimes. Other times it doesn't. <laughs> but it, I, I think there's a way too. you were, you were saying that, you know, if you are in the habit, if you have a regular practice where you're accessing your breath to keep you calm and centered and give you access to that presence within yourself, then in the face of one of your children being really upset, right. It's easier for you to validate their feelings and just be present and stay with them and listen to them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the recent story is my son said, you love Harrison more when I was trying to take away his iPad. And um, in the past, that one statement would have led me down, you know, a couple of thoughts in my head that took me away from the opportunity of that immediate parenting moment. And I said, I love you. I love you so much. I want you to give me your iPad and we're going to go play outside. In the past, I would have been reminded by one simple little statement about parts of that seven-year journey when we were separated and, and one of the twins in particular had, had a piece of trauma that was still lingering and, and it will linger for life but it's how we respond to it. And so in, in that moment, you know, just going, him seeing me take a deep breath prevented him from going into a tantra because he knew that I wasn't responding because he, you know, put the iPad down. You love Harrison Moore and put it down and was doing his, his little thing and closing your eyes 
closing my eyes and just going calmly, I love you. I love you so much. You're going to give me your iPad and we're going to go play outside. Kept me present right there in that parenting moment. And most importantly, it didn't lead to you're always on your iPad. You know, you never go outside and play these shaming words when we're again in our heads, not in that present parenting moment thinking, I mean, all kinds of thoughts go into our head as parents is all kinds of thoughts in a moment like that. Mm -hmm. He's on technology too long, or he's going to have a tantrum or all kinds of things. But in that present moment, taking a deep breath, him seeing me do that. Right. And you, you accepting what he was expressing and, you know, being able to maintain your own composure so you could stay with it and not, like you said, not be triggered and argue with him or let any of the random thoughts like that's not true. Or why do you say that? Or, you know, there's so many ways that you could, you know, react to that. And I think what you, that story demonstrates beautifully is that you can just respond you can choose a way of responding that's warm and loving and accepting. And what I love about that is that, because I think a lot of parents feel like if they get into this, this warm and fuzzy place where they're, you know, home within and all this kind of (laughs) woo woo stuff. I think they're afraid they're going to become soft. And that was so nice because it's like, no, I love you. I love you so very much. And you're going to give me your iPad and we're going to go outside and play. Not like, well, now we're not going to go outside and play because you, you're being fresh. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you know, talking to me this way. It's like, it's just really, it's, it's very much the, the model, I think. No, it wasn't perfect with him. That didn't work right away. Um, you know, and I think that the key again is being able to yourself stay present and to to watch your your mind. And the more that you attempt to calm yourself and then within to acknowledge whatever thoughts might be going on, yet not go in them and repeating a message of love and not going into the the fear and judgments. That's the attack thoughts. Eventually, eventually the kids will feel it in you and they'll feel it inside themselves. It takes time, but it, it can happen. It can be mutual family recovery as long as we ourselves work to ban the shame within and stay calm within it. The benefits to children are like innumerable. It's innumerable. Yeah. You write in your, in your book, there's at one point you say, when you were able to sort of reclaim your level of confidence that you are a good mom, that you love your children, you're just, you, mm-hmm. and you had, you had ended up having three children, you had you know, multiple pregnancies because you have so much love to give. When you got back to that place, that. yeah, when you, well, it, it just touched me so much. It, it's when you forget that and you start believing the random thoughts like, well, so-and-so said this, or this should be happening, or that's not the right way. Well, the neighbors hearing this argument, I mean, all kinds of stuff. Right, right. All kinds. And th- that's where I try to keep the skills that I have gained really, really simple. 
that I share with others. And we can say, you know, build a home within. Well, what does that mean? And the most basic thing that I want to share with others is that it is a safe space you create for yourself where you're aware of those attack thoughts on yourself and on others. And the reason is every single day we have a choice and every hour and every minute and every moment, like that parenting moment, to choose love of self, of whatever is happening, whatever we're thinking, anything, or go into the fear and judgment, go into the, all the worries, all the, all the projections, all the future concerns, all the past coming up. It's like right here. And right now I am choosing love for self and this present moment, love for my child that is banning shame. So shame shows up. How would you say shame shows up most commonly through Attack thoughts or? Yeah. Worrying about what people think. Shame, I mean, is a whole body thing. Mm. Shame is that you're not, you know, good enough. You're not what people are expecting, what you yourself are expecting. But I think the most powerful thing about it is, is the core value is everybody is desires to to be needed, to be loved to, to have their roles and to feel a purpose. And I think the interesting thing about shame is it works with those fears and it works with the self-judgments to eat, to eat at the belief in your value, the belief you are adequately fulfilling a role. And all of that is mind made. All of it is, is mind made. So again, just remembering our true selves aren't in this physical finite limited form, whether you believe in a higher power or a creator or not, you know, my oldest son, the astrophysicist knows that there's unanswered questions in that first, you know, spark and in physics. And he's, he puts it there, you know, I'll believe the first spark that created all of life and everything, all the universes, everything that we haven't even yet discovered and everything that we know, that is what we came from. And just a little reminder of that. And you can sit back and just go, all the stuff is going on around me, all of it. And right now I'm in the survival mode in these fears and judgments, but I'm going to remember that light. I'm going to remember just love and embrace this moment and it will pass and you can be present. And the more and more that you practice that, reminding ourselves of that truth, the, the thoughts reduce, you know, we call them character defects in, you know, 12 step programs. Um, we call them mental illnesses, how they show up, um, I like to think that most of it is all fear and judgment and shame arises through those when we feel our purpose here in this life is being threatened or we're not fulfilling it or we're not good enough. Yeah. So before I let you go, I want to make sure though, that I give you a chance to talk, just say something about the difficulty you've had yourself 
asking for help because as you say, nobody moves in with you and holds your hand through all of this. You have to find, you have to do this practice yourself and you have to do it over and over again, even when you're doing it imperfectly, even when it's hard. And at the same time, your ability to, to open up and really listen and engage with others. You had some pretty incredible um, mentors or teachers along the way. And that might be a way to encourage listeners to, to say to them, if this all sounds too woo-woo or out there or whatever, what would you recommend in terms of reaching out or asking for help or seeking support that would bring someone in this direction? The most heroic thing that anybody can do is to reach outside the darkness of their mind to another human being, period. If it's saying I need help, that's another step. If it's saying I need to go to the ER or treatment, that's another step. But just simply reaching out and connecting to another human being is the first step. When that connection happens, human to human, it is far more likely that there is honesty and you can ask for help. But there are hundreds, hundreds of recovery programs online. There are hundreds in person. Uh, and, you know, there's so many support groups. We hear about all of this, but the it's heroic to ask for help. It's heroic, in my opinion, to ask for help. Why? Do not let any, any fear of any judgment from anyone or anything, including ourselves, including yourself, stop you from reaching out for help. And, you know, I have a sponsor, I have a therapist, I have a fellowship in the 12 step program. You know, I have longtime friends in sobriety and, and a partner who has over 30 years and, you know, my sponsor still has me today working on self-will. She had me redo, you know, one of the steps and, and completely have a whole nother way of looking at when life is becoming unmanageable. She said months ago, what are your limitations, Nadia? And it wasn't like, what are your strengths? What is your workload limitations? It was more in terms of boundaries. It wasn't setting it on other things or people. It was on myself because I would, I get to points where I don't ask for help and I don't partner with others, but it's at a level where it's manageable. And so when we can ask for help, when chronic pain, when sadness, when stress or whatever it is, is at a level that is okay, I need to reach out now. That is golden. If, if anybody is in darkness and loneliness and isolation, walk outside that door or pick up the phone and call a friend or connect with something online. Message me. We are never alone. And ultimately, my hope for everybody is that they can have that warm, safe place within themselves that is called home. So they never, ever, ever feel alone. They have connection with something beyond them where everything is explained and the answers come. 
but it's a process. It's a process. So for those that, so for those that want to sort of continue to follow your process, they can, you've got a website so people can find you online and you do some things on Facebook or Instagram. I go live on Instagram. Um, Thursdays I do do healing Kundalini yoga, a short, short meditation. And I share breath work that is also going to be done on Sundays. On Sundays, I'm, I'm live streaming yoga. And on Fridays, I do what's called spiritual advocacy. It sounds a lot fancier than it is, but it's really just advocating for ourselves. Again, banning shame, reaching out for help and advocating for our truths and who we really are. And I have guests. And so, yes, at Nadia Maria Davis on Instagram. And if anybody, again, is struggling, please reach out for help. Nice. I think that's great. I think you'll you'll have people people following you, as will I. And I'll be interested to see how the book does and where you go from here. I really appreciate you taking time to talk with Thank me. Thank you. There's a lot of healing offerings on the Instagram and they're reposted on Facebook, but yes, that's my honor. That's my work today is to help others ban shame and for them on their roads of trauma and addiction recovery. Yeah. Thank you. 